0: Well, good morning, ladies. Hope you're all doing well this morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Some of the things I'm going to be talking about today are um, there's a question on your homework, question number one. Um, so you might just want to keep that in mind as you're listening, so that you can prepare your heart for how you're going to be answering that question in your homework this week. But first, as we do. Every time we're together, let's go ahead and flip those binders over to review the Wellspring Purpose. It says it's to equip the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ and the Word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. As you know... Our purpose is further broken down into three areas. We call them the disciplines, right? Let's look at them together. Discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Then there's discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And Discipline 3, the ministry, with a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Have you noticed the last word in each of those disciplines? Take a peek. What is it? The gospel. That's right. That's because the gospel is the centerpiece of wellspring. And just as an attractive centerpiece is designed to be the focal point of a beautifully set table, so we are called to keep the gospel, the focal point of our lives, remembering that we never graduate from the gospel. No, until heaven, we don't receive that diploma, do we? We never graduate from shepherding our hearts toward God, through the word of God, and especially The gospel. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for sending your son to bear our sin on the cross in order to take the wrath that we so justly deserve. We thank you that Jesus conquered death by resurrecting on the third day. We thank you that he is now seated at your right hand and is interceding on our behalf. And finally, we thank you for not leaving us orphans, but for providing your Holy Spirit to comfort us, and your inspired word to be a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. Amen. Well, there's a newspaper article I found dated July 30th, 2002. And it told of a devastating story of an Amtrak train near Washington, D.C. that actually jumped the tracks. And it skidded to a brutal landing, completely turning over on its side. Of course, in all that twisted metal, there were fatalities. And of course, the train was totaled, utterly totaled. So reading about this tragedy, you can't help but ask yourself, what happened? And how can this kind of tragedy be avoided in the future? Well, the experts believe that the derailment was caused by a heat kink in the track. And I learned that certain kinds of tracks, um, when the air temperature reaches around 100 degrees, small patches of the track can actually bow out several inches or even a foot or more. And the scary part about this is that even after a track is inspected, it can still warp within a matter of hours and cause derailment. So one solution that they found is for on those types of tracks for the trains to move more slowly and that way they're less likely to derail. Okay, well that's an interesting story, but what has that got to do with you and me and with the disciplines that we just reviewed? Well, in my life, I've seen over and over again how God uses everyday experiences, including tragedies, to remind us about his word and about his character, and that that is revealed to us through his word. And so, in the story of the train jumping the tracks, it challenges me to stop dead in my own tracks and to consider my own life as a believer. You see, each of us has been given a perfectly designed instrument on which we are to place our minds, our hearts, and our complete way of thinking and responding to the world around us. And this instrument is called the Bible, the inspired word of God. And it's profitable, we know this, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. And that's 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. We never graduate from discipline one because we are continually enticed to be distracted, to be troubled, to be diverted and preoccupied by the stresses, the strains, the heat the demands of living in a fallen world. And just like the train track in our story that was inspected the night before the derailment, we too can close our Bibles some mornings after a wonderfully rich and meaningful time in the Word, only to get on that fast track of life and quickly zoom through our day. Perhaps circumstances of life have heated up a bit. Since that quiet morning time in the Lord, we may suddenly realize that our thoughts have jumped the track and we have derailed ourselves from Philippians 4.8 thinking, which says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How rapidly this can happen in my own life and yours. You know, before long, I find that as I hurriedly move through life, I'm allowing my thoughts and my emotions to fly through me at warp speed. What I should be doing instead is to slow down in order to deliberately and carefully Scrutinize my thoughts and my emotions and make certain that the gospel is my gatekeeper my inspector and my centerpiece when I have taken my eyes off of Christ and the gospel I have allowed myself to be distracted to be troubled, to be diverted and I must get myself back on track quickly I've got to do it and so do you This is nothing, though, that I can do on my own strength. And I praise God for that. For it keeps me humbly dependent on him, and that's a good thing. Instead, by God's grace, he has equipped me to set myself upright again and to put myself on the right tracks. How do I shepherd my heart towards God and the gospel? How do you? I'm eager to hear about it. I'm eager to hear your stories and your insights and the way that God has taught you to do this because we can learn from each other's experiences, right? And that's encouraging. Well, there's one thing I'd like to share, how this has often um, played out in my own life, especially in the few days following David, my 18-month-old son's diagnosis with leukemia, grandson's diagnosis with leukemia. In the difficult days following the diagnosis, the Holy Spirit led me through several steps to help me purposefully and intentionally get my anxious thoughts back on track. And I hope that these steps can help you too. Well, when I teach math, I regularly give my first graders a more difficult problem to solve than is typically found in their everyday math lessons. The solution is, at first, not always evident to my students. But with a little bit of guidance from me, they're often able to come up with the right answer on their own. Now there are three questions that I direct my students to ask themselves as they set out to solve a problem. And these same three questions, they can be useful in my own life as I direct and shepherd my heart toward the gospel. Question one. What do I already know? Question two, what do I need to find out? And question three, what tools will I use to solve the problem? Well, let's unpack these questions one at a time. Number one, Christian, when you're confronted with the fact that you need to align your thinking with the gospel, you can ask yourself, what do I already know? This is the perfect time to rehearse the truths of God's character, His precious promises to believers, and His instructions for living life in a Christ-centered way. What do you already know? As we daily spend time in the Word, remember that our goal is to get to know the God of the Word. This is not done by a quick glance in the Word, but it's intentionally gazing at it, lingering on it, studying it, meditating on it, contemplating it, writing it down, memorizing it, etc., until it directs our thinking to be aligned to the truth. You know, I'm reminded of 1 Samuel 3.10, when Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Wow. How vigilant are we not to rush through our Bible reading? How careful are we to listen to the God of the universe speak through us? I'm sorry, speak to us through his word. How eager are we to build our knowledge base of Him? In Psalm one hundred nineteen, one hundred thirty the psalmist declares the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. When I read this, I'm encouraged and I'm eager to carefully unfold the verses before me instead of just giving them a quick read. For in doing so, my simple mind will receive understanding in order to know him better and to know what pleases him. Believe me, I need all the understanding I can get. And so do you. Number two, when we get ourselves back on track, we need to ask, or when we need to get ourselves back on track, we can ask, what do I need to find out? You know, just a few days ago, I was about to host and to be the guest of honor at my very own private pity party (laughs) because of a misunderstanding that I had, and it was all on my part. But when the truth was explained, it turned off. I was totally off track in my thinking. And I was able to set myself straight again. What do you need to find out? Sometimes I need to ask my husband or a trusted Christian friend for help in doing this. Oftentimes what helps me to align myself to the gospel is intentionally seeking out the evidences of God's grace in this situation and to rehearse them to myself and to declare them to others. Doing this simple exercise makes me immediately thankful in the midst of trials because it sets my eyes on him rather than on my circumstances. What do we need to find out? One evening I overheard a friend reminding my husband Jeff that we serve a mighty God. Well, that's a truth we've heard many times before. We believe it. We know it. But you know, that particular night, it had a really deep impact on me. Because it reminded me that God doesn't serve us, right? Instead, we serve Him. We're called to serve Him and to trust Him with our whole hearts, even when life is hard. Especially when life is hard. When we have God's word hidden in our hearts, we need to make sure that our thinking is aligned to him, to his thinking. We can ponder, we can consider, we can wonder about such things as the riches of his grace. And this is exactly what I did in a matter of moments as I asked myself, what do I need to find out? What does my heart need to know about God's grace right now? In order to make sure that my thinking is on track. The Lord brought to mind several verses that I already knew about his grace. Such as Ephesians 1.7-8 which says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Don't you love that word lavished? When you stop to ponder that word, what do you think of? Certainly lavish is the opposite of stingy, right? I like to imagine a mother, and she's generously piling and slathering the icing on top of her child's birthday cake, adding more and more of the yummy stuff just because she delights in giving to her child. Well, knowing that God lavished the riches of his grace on us, we can rely on his grace to be sufficient for us when life is especially difficult. When the tracks heat up, when we're weak, just as he told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12:9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What do I need to find out? Taking time to inform myself about God's character allows me to trust Him. And it makes me so thankful that I am His child. And I know that the grace that He lavishes on me is grace that is sufficient to help my grandson. This fact causes me to slow down, to rest in Him, and to center my life on him. Number three, finally we can ask, what tools do I need to help me get back on track and to keep me on track? Well, obviously the first tool should be the Bible. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, Psalm 119.11. Secondly, I love to recall the gospel centered songs that we sing in church and that now we have available to us through our little Wellspring songbook. The words in the song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, were especially meaningful to me the day that David started chemo. And it goes, part of it goes like this Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul on Thee, when sorrows rise, On thee, when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. What tools do we need? We can be thankful for the wonderful teaching that we receive each Sunday here at Grace Bible Church. We can be thankful for tools such as good Christian books recommended to us by the elders and made available to us at the book table each Sunday. We can use tools such as monthly women's fellowship, Wellspring, our yearly women's retreat, Christian conferences such as Women for Truth, Finally, we can and we should use tools of fellowship and accountability and encouragement provided in our small group and our Wellspring Buddy. So dear sisters, I eagerly desire to encourage you to keep shepherding your hearts toward God through His Word and in particular the Gospel. I encourage you to take what you are learning And use it to minister to those in your household because your heart is for God and for the gospel. And lastly, I encourage you to step out into each other's lives and to help shepherd each other toward God, the God that we love, and toward the gospel that we cling to so that the church will be strong and will be healthy. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we come before you with thankful hearts because you have so graciously lavished your grace upon us. Please, help us to desire nothing but you, to hope on nothing and no one except your Son, Jesus Christ, and to be vigilantly guarding our hearts in order to keep him the centerpiece of our lives. It is in your name we pray. Amen.
1: This is so great. I just want you to know she has a train that's bigger than the tracks up here. It's really good visual aid. It is good to be here with you. I feel a little rusty, you know. It's been a while since I've been up here to teach. And then I, I really made a mistake today on your homework. Um, as Lori noted, your first question is about the disciplines. But um, on question three, it's actually the first bullet on the back of the homework. uh, This is the one you received today. It's the yellow one that that you picked up when you came in. And it refers to an optional resource that you didn't get because I forgot to send it to Allie to print. Um, That was completely my oversight so what I'll do is this afternoon, I'll I'll actually just send you the document, um, the word document or a PDF or something. And so you'll have it. Um, the assignment here is, is to read it and familiarize yourself with it so that this week or any point in the future when it would be helpful for you or for you in caring for someone else to get a better understanding of what God's word says about suffering, who doesn't need to get a better grip on that? Um, You'll know what's available. You'll have that. I will send it to Allie, and we will have them printed for you to get a print copy of next time if you you don't end up printing one yourself between now and then. But please at least open the document that I send you and read through it so you're familiar with it. Okay. Um, I think that's it. So let me pray. Lord, again, we come before your throne. Um, Lord, there's a part of me that just wishes we could just do this the whole time. It's just a a blessing to draw near to you. Um, You are our only hope. Um, Thank you for sending your Son to be our Redeemer. Thank you for lavishing your grace, and that grace is sufficient. Um, Thank you that you are so relentless in your pursuit of us, and in pursuing our holiness, and making us like your Son. In um, making us ready to see him face to face, Lord, to be able to meet him face to face without shame. Lord, that is all your work, and we're so thankful. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would go forth in a way today that first and most pleases you. I pray that you would make it clear. Um, I pray that each woman would be encouraged. I pray, Father, that um, that you would just lead and direct each word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, last time we looked at biblical womanhood, and we saw that increasingly a biblical view of being a woman and gender is very countercultural. Uh, the biblical position is no longer generally shared by society. And those who don't have a biblical view are no longer out on the radical fringe somewhere. But what's most countercultural about the lesson on biblical womanhood is where we looked for our standard. We look to God, and we look to his word. And that is a shocking, offensive declaration to our world, that God has the right to define womanhood. And God's word is not where the world looks for anything, Now today we're talking about bearing God's image in singleness and marriage. Excuse me, okay. And our world has just as many unbiblical opinions about marriage and singleness as it does about womanhood and gender. Only the difference may be That we are probably a lot more likely to believe the lies of the world when it comes to marriage and singleness. You know, do you ever believe it when people say to newlyweds that it's all downhill from here? You know, this is as good as it gets, just wait. I mean, married women are told they're losing their freedom, and single women are told they're missing out. Is a single person a fifth wheel? Is a woman's life on hold because she hasn't married? All of those assumptions and cultural myths are lies. They're not true, and they're not biblical, but we're not of this world. And so the radical message that we are embracing when we look to God in his word to explain gender and marriage and singleness is that God is the creator, and he has a right to rule what he's made, and his rule is good. So we need to do a quick review of what we saw in Biblical Womanhood, and if you missed that lesson, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to it. We're going to just breeze through a small part of it just for some background here. Um, But first, in that Biblical Womanhood lesson, we looked at Genesis 1, and we saw that God created man in his own image. He created man both male and female. And both were created to be God's image bearers. And then we saw that to understand what God's image is, we have to look to Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 and in Philippians 2, we saw that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus existed in the form of God, but he took the form of a servant. So the image of God is that of serving, of not grasping for yourself, but of giving yourself away like a slave does. It's surrendering yourself. It's self-giving love. Another way in which Jesus showed us the image of God was in His unity with the Father. John 10:30 said, in John 10:30, Jesus said, "I and the Father are one. One, perfectly united, eternally joined in seamless unity." So we can describe the image of God as seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. We're going to use that phrase a lot today when we want to remind ourselves what the image of God is. Seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. Because there is this self-giving, or because there is this self-giving love that flows between the members of the Godhead, they are so unified that they can be spoken of as one. Each of the three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, reveals the image of God to be this image of self-giving love. Each of the three manifests this self-giving love to the others. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. And the Holy Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. And it's that unity and self-giving love of God that God created man to reveal about himself. But remember we saw last time in Genesis 3, this is at number 3 on your outline. Sin entered the world and Adam and Eve became self-grasping. They no longer followed God, but instead they trusted in themselves. And because of their sin, because of their self-grasping, the image of God in them was obscured. And we have all been plagued by that ever since. Now go ahead and turn over to Romans 8.29. The beauty and the power of the gospel is that the ability for us to bear God's image is restored through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, that's God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be restored to being image bearers of God. Colossians 3.10 makes the same point when it says that we've put on the new self who is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. That is what happens when a life is transformed by the gospel. When a rebel comes in repentance and faith in Christ Christ, She is forgiven. She's made a new creation. She has peace with God. And she's freed from sin's rule and mastery of her. And she is renewed into an image bearer of God. She's restored to displaying the self-giving love of Christ. And as believers, not only does God have a right to rule because he's our creator, but so much more because he is our Savior and Lord. We are Twice his. And so, why make this point in a lesson on bearing God's image in singleness and marriage? Well, it's important because we easily forget whose we are. We're forgetful people, and when we forget, we're a lot more likely to struggle to think biblically about our circumstances. It's just what Lori was talking about. So, let's remind ourselves whose we are. You have those references. I'm going to just pull out some. Thoughts from each one, so don't try to flip to each one. But Titus 2:14, Jesus says that it says that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. 1 Corinthians 6:19 and 20 tells us that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price. Romans 6:22 tells us that we've been enslaved to God. And Jesus put it this way in Mark 8.34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up our cross means to die. 2 Corinthians 5 helps explain that. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is his call on our lives. We've died. We're not our own, and so we are to live for him alone, not partly for God and partly for me. It's being wholly devoted to the Lord in all things. About 10 years ago, a popular book on marriage, posed this question on the cover. It said, What if God's primary intent for marriage isn't to make you happy, but holy? And it's worth expanding that question to include our whole life. What if God's primary intent for our new life in Christ isn't to make us happy, but to make us holy? Now make no mistake, there is no greater joy than being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Again, you've got a list of references there. Psalm 16.2 says, You are my Lord, I have no good besides you. Verse 11, he says, In your presence is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forever. Psalm 27.4, the psalmist says he's asked one thing of the Lord, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, and to behold his beauty. Psalm 34.8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 36.8 says, you gave them to drink of the river of your delights. And in Psalm 73.28, the nearness of God is my good. Absolutely, there is joy and there is satisfaction for our souls in God himself. But following Jesus is a call to die. To live for Him alone. And getting a firm grasp on all of that, on God's right to rule in our lives and in our circumstances, and His call for us to die to ourselves because we're not our own, we belong to Him, and that He is the only true source of joy and happiness. All of that helps us to joyfully embrace His purposes, His purposes, sorry, His purposes for us. To bear his image in singleness and marriage. To find joy and contentment and even happiness in submitting ourselves to the Lord and his design and his purposes for the role he has for us. It's a joyful thing. It's a good thing. The Lord is trustworthy. Jamie um, said last time that we'll find freedom and joy not in casting off his design, but in embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is knowing Christ and making him known. We must be women who embrace what God gives us to make him more visible. So we were created to bear God's image, which is perfectly displayed in Christ, but sin corrupted God's image in us. But Jesus restores us to God's image through a relationship with himself. Therefore... The greatest relationship is that which we have with Jesus. That's the greatest relationship. That's what we are to be most concerned about. That is the relationship that shapes our hearts to be something beautiful to the Creator. Now, at times, we may be single. At times, we may be married. You know, everyone in this room has been single, right? And many of us will be single again. On average, women live seven years longer than men. Many of us will be widowed. So whether we are married or single, we all need to understand God's design for both singleness and marriage. Understanding God's design for singleness prepares us to value singleness and to display Christ well in seasons of singleness. It prepares us to make the most of opportunities unique to being a single woman. It helps us appreciate and encourage other women who are in this season, so that all of us as members of the body of Christ care well for one another. And we also all need to have a good understanding of God's design for displaying his image in marriage, that the way we think about marriage and talk about marriage and live out marriage and even look towards marriage in our future perhaps makes much of God's design for marriage. We need to know what God's word says so we can encourage our grown children in their marriages so we can help our friends esteem marriage, and so that we are women who protect marriage. (laughs) Even if we are satisfied in marriage right now, it is a temporary relationship that ends when one of us dies. Marriage is not, and it must not be, the greatest relationship in our lives. Our tendency is to think that I need an additional relationship, Jesus Christ plus someone else, whether we're married or single. You know, if we're married, we might think we need our husband or our children to make us feel loved and needed and appreciated. And if we're single, we might think, you know, I need to be in a relationship. Maybe I just need to find or pursue a relationship with that person who's going to make me feel special. We have this need, and we think that this need is going to be met by a human relationship. And the whole time we're thinking that way, we're completely missing the fact that no human relationship was ever designed to satisfy that which we only find in Jesus. Now, I found an article by Carolyn McCauley that I'm going to share a quote from. And I just want to tell you, for those of you who are not familiar with Carolyn McCauley, she's a woman who's never married, she's in her 50s, and she uh, communicates in a way that's I've found really helpful in articles and books um, about looking at uh, biblical womanhood and singleness in light of the gospel, in light of God's character, in light of eternity, and um, just very, very encouraging and helpful. So she shared in an article a quote from a secular women's magazine that read, despite the conventional wisdom, being married boosts happiness only one-tenth of a point on an 11-point scale. And most people are no more satisfied with life after marriage than they were before. Carolyn McCauley comments on this by saying, We shouldn't be surprised. The mainstream study only confirms what we read throughout the Bible. God has designed us to find our ultimate fulfillment in him. Not in anything or anyone that he's created. Contentment and satisfaction in life are not issues of marriage or singleness. They're heart issues. It's about discipline one, right? Discipline one is how we cultivate that greatest relationship with Jesus, our Savior, our Master, the lover of our souls. Prayerfully shepherding our heart toward God through the word of God is how we participate in that renewal, into the image of God in our own lives so that we can be more concerned with loving and serving others than with how they are satisfying us. So what does that mean specifically for bearing God's image when we're single? We're at number five on the outline. Go ahead and turn to John 17, verse 20. (coughs) Now, most, if not all, of the principles we're going to talk about, whether we're looking at singleness or marriage, really apply more broadly than just those seasons of life. But we're going to look at these passages to help us build a per- biblical perspective on singleness. Now, remember, the image of God is one of seamless unity cemented together with self giving love. And that's exactly what Jesus prayed for on his last night with his disciples. So listen to his heart. Verse 20, he was praying to the Father, and he said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So he's praying for us, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for our unity so that others may believe. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays for our unity so that others may believe. Verse 22. Oh, sorry, lost my place there. Our Lord Jesus prayed that we would be one, just like he and the Father are one. A oneness that Jesus describes as being in one another. You, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And he's pouring out his heart to his Father, asking that we, the body of Christ, every last one of us, would be one. Because that's how the world can know something about him. Our unity, our oneness, reveals him. So what does that say about being a lone ranger? Not pursuing fellowship with the body of Christ. It's excluded, isn't it? Isolation is not an option for a believer, single or married. We need to look no further than Jesus himself to see that meaningful relationships were a source of strength and companionship in fulfilling his ministry as a single man. When he was facing the cross, he went apart to pray and he asked his closest friends to join him. Believers are saved into the body of Christ, And God makes himself known through our oneness together, through our unity, through our connectedness, and love, and care, and service, and encouragement for one another. And in that, we get to display God's image of seamless unity and self-giving love to a lost world. Well, let's take a look at part B. Marriage isn't always better. I want to read you two verses and see if you can see a problem, an apparent problem. Genesis 2:18, God says it's not good for man to be alone." And then in 1 Corinthians 7:7, 7, 7, Paul writes, "I wish that all men were even as I myself am, referring to his singleness. So is it good, or is it not good for man to be alone? Well, John Piper explains it by pointing out that two very significant events happened between these two verses. These two verses are separated by both the fall and the cross. Those two events had an impact on the natural world order that was in place in Genesis 2, so that in some circumstances, it is better for man to be alone. It certainly was better for Paul to be alone than married, he thought, because he was more devoted to Christ. So does that make sense? In a pre-fall world, it wasn't good for man to be alone. But in our world, after the fall and after the cross, sometimes it is good for a man to be alone in the sense that he doesn't marry. And knowing that God works all things for good to those who love him, that's Romans 8.28, we can be confident that when we are single, it is good. And when we are married, it is good. It's God's definition of good, which is to make us more like Christ. So let's look at C then on the outline. <clears throat> Singleness and marriage as, as gifts. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says some interesting things here. So we want to take a look At both singleness and marriage as gifts. And there can be a lot of confusion about this. So let's start with reading in verse one. Paul writes, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And by that he meant not to marry. In the culture of that day, a man would not have touched a woman to whom he wasn't married. So Paul is saying it's good not to marry. And then he talks about marriage for a few verses and comes back in verse 6 and says, But this I say by way of concession, not command. Paul wants to be clear that he's not commanding that people must get married. He underscores that with verse 7 when he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another that. (laughs) Paul recognizes that each man has his own gift. Now, what gift is he referring to? Well, it's singleness and marriage. Paul says they are each a gift. Now, obviously, marriage and singleness are not the same as spiritual gifts given at conversion. They don't occur in the lists of spiritual gifts that we see in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. But God is our Father, and he gives good gifts. To his children. Perhaps you've witnessed thoughtful, loving parents giving different gifts to their children at different times. Sometimes parents give gifts that the children don't necessarily appreciate, do they? Uh, you know, I'm giving you the gift of washing dishes because I want to help you learn to serve, and I want to help you be humble, and I want to help you be hardworking. I mean, those are loving gifts. And our Heavenly Father who loves and welcomes us more Then we can comprehend is at work every day lavishing us with his grace. And grace is the Greek, is the root of that Greek word for gift as he gives us one of two particular gifts every day. Today his gift for me is marriage and the day may come when his gift to me changes. Today my daughters receive the gift of singleness from their heavenly father. That is the gift that he chose for them today. And one day they may find that he has a different gift for them. But both are gifts of God's grace. Now thinking of both marriage and singleness as gifts might be a new perspective. So again, I want to share with you from Carolyn McCauley. Speaking of singleness, she writes, It's not a gift we have to spend time trying to identify. Or even worrying that we may have forever. If we're single today, we have the gracious gift of singleness today. <laughs> not necessarily forever, but we have it today. And how we may feel about it, you know, do I like being single, do I desire marriage instead, That's not part, that doesn't affect whether it's a gift or not. The emphasis here is on a gracious God who gives good gifts, and ultimately on his purpose for giving them. This gift is not an activity, and it's not a role, but it's a blessing, like the free gift of eternal life that was given to us without any merit of our own. Singleness and marriage are God's grace gifts, His means for us to display His image in unity and self giving love with His body. So, what are some of the unique ways that singleness allows us to display His image? What are the privileges of singleness? We're at D. Now, we're already in 1 Corinthians 7. Look down at verse 34. <clears throat> The woman who is unmarried, now this would be a woman who used to be married, and the virgin, this is a woman who's never been married, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. The single woman in Christ can be concerned about the things of the Lord, and that feeds holiness, and that secures undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that is a privilege. When we're single, we have unique opportunities and availability, if we're shepherding our hearts to be concerned with the things of the Lord, if we're concerned with holiness, then we can use our unique availability for undistracted devotion to the Lord. And the whole time we're doing that, there's nothing wrong with desiring marriage. That is a good desire, especially if you desire to display God's image in that marriage. But sometimes God's plan for us is different than what we want, right? And so we trust him and entrust those desires to him and rest in what he has for us right now. And when we do that, we're actually guarding against letting that desire become an idol. You know, if we do let that desire become an idol, we could set ourselves up for stumbling into joylessness, discontentment, impurity, or even the disobedience of perhaps dating or even marrying someone who's not devoted to Jesus. And so we've looked at God's word and we've seen how essential our union with the body of Christ is in displaying God's image to the world. And we've seen that when we're, when we're single, it is a gift and a privilege. Now, all that being said, we don't always view singleness as a gift or a privilege. It can be hard. It can be lonely. It can be awkward. It can be painful. There are seasons of grief caused by hopes deferred. And sometimes when we're struggling, it can be hard to know, is it okay to grieve? Or am I just feeling sorry for myself? You know, am I having a pity party? And so again, I want to share something from Carolyn McCauley. And frankly, I think her words are helpful in dealing with other hopes deferred as well. could be childlessness or financial struggles, a wayward child or prolonged illness. But she writes that the most telling difference between self-pity and grief is our attitude toward God in the loss. It is a very real loss to have dreams deferred or to die. Marriage seems so commonplace that to remain single when you desire otherwise truly can be a form of suffering. While those who grieve for a tangible loss, like the death of a loved one, seem to work through it within a defined season, there is a circular aspect to mourning extended singleness. Though we may be doing well from one holiday to the next, the cumulative effect of facing another Valentine's Day this week, or Thanksgiving, or Christmas, it can trigger that grief again. And yet, she writes, uh, looking to Romans 15:13, the Lord would want to interrupt that pattern of mourning with the joy that overflows to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. How is that possible? Well, let us consider again the difference between self pity and grief. Self pity turns our gaze inward, focusing only on ourselves. It says, I am worthy of so much more. Why has this been withheld? It's a response of pride. Therefore, it's accompanied by an inconsolable, demanding spirit that fuels the emotion. Self-pity leads us to assume the worst. Lord, don't you care? You know, if we find ourselves asking that question, we should be concerned that maybe we've let self-pity take root. True Christian grief, like Jeremiah did in Lamentations chapter 3, says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. He doesn't ignore the painful circumstance. And yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because the Lord's great, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. She goes on to say that we care well for one another when we listen compassionately to one another's struggles and we ask wise questions to expose what we really believe about God and ourselves and then we remind one another of what is true because of the cross and the reality of what lies ahead for every believer. That's described in places like 2 Corinthians 4. The bottom line is this. If the wonderful, glorious promises of heaven and all that has been secured for us in the manifold mercy found at the cross doesn't penetrate the fog of our grief, then we can be sure self-pity has begun to harden our hearts. She concludes by saying, There is a vast difference between being told to get over it and being equipped with the truth that helps to vanquish both self-pity and grief. And I have to say, as I read her books and her articles um, and I saw her respond to the challenges of singleness by pointing to the character of God and the Word of God and the Gospel and our hope of eternity and, and turning to the Lord in prayer, I just kept thinking, that's what I need to do. Right? Heart shepherding is heart shepherding. Doesn't Really, change with our circumstances. Um, whatever our circumstances, learning to trust God and learning to find our contentment in Him is a discipline. It takes practice, and it's something we can learn and it's something that we need one another to keep encouraging us in. Okay, that brings us to F, where we get to look at some examples of undistracted devotion to the Lord from Scripture. Back in 1 Corinthians 7.34, we saw that Paul wanted the church to value the privileges of singleness in order to secure undistracted devotion to him. And scripture provides a great cloud of witnesses who live this this out, and there's a lot of variety. God does not have a cookie cutter for what singleness is supposed to look like. Ruth was devoted to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, and she did hard physical labor to meet her needs. The Proverbs 31 woman, that she might surprise you to see her on here as a role model for single women. But these are the words of a mother to her son. And she wanted this future ruler to know what to look for in a single woman to ensure that he would find an excellent wife. So the passage describes the role of a wife, but her godly character is an example for all women. Tabitha in Acts 9 abounded with kind, charitable deeds. She made clothes for widows. And Lydia is in Acts 16. She was a successful businesswoman who served and extended hospitality to the church, even those like Paul who were being persecuted for Jesus' sake, bringing danger and risk to her own reputation and household. Anna, in Luke 2, was devoted to prayer, fasting, and thankfulness, and speaking to others about the Savior. Mary Magdalene is prominent in the gospel narratives. She was at the crucifixion, she was at the burial, and she was the first one to see our risen Lord. And she was also generous with her financial resources. Mary and Martha were two sisters who were noted for their hospitality that they showed to Jesus. Now, how did this diverse cloud of witnesses of faithful single women bear God's image of seamless unity and self-giving love? Well, amongst many, many qualities, we saw things like selflessness, service, mercy, diligence, hospitality, trustworthiness, generosity, prayerfulness, and devotion to Jesus and his people. As a woman of God, no matter who you are and what you do, God has placed you there to show and tell the goodness of his design for women and the goodness of his salvation as you bear his image of seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. And I just praise God because many, many of you are already doing this well. Praise God. So we're going to take a little break. Um. Okay, ladies, thanks for coming back. (laughs) Okay, so, quick recap. Man was created to bear God's image. Sin corrupted man's ability to do that. Jesus is the image of God, of seamless unity, cemented with self-giving love, and through the gospel, we are restored to being God's image bearers. And so... The greatest relationship is that which we have with Jesus. So before our break, we finished talking about bearing God's image in seasons of singleness, and that brings us to number six. Marriage presents yet another stage for displaying God's image, and as we've seen how important our um, our relationships are with the body of Christ, I hope it's becoming more and more clear that we all need to understand God's design for both singleness and marriage. Because it gives us the opportunity to live out this counter-cultural truth that God does have a right to rule, and that his design is good, and that his word is the only trustworthy foundation for understanding who we are. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 2. Now, we already referred to Genesis 1, where God created man in his image, male and female. But to understand how marriage ties into that, we need to look at Genesis 2. Now, this is before the fall. God has continu- now, And since then, God has continued to unfold his redemptive plan. And we've already seen that in Christ, we bear his image through our relationship with him and through the unity of the church. But to understand God's original design for marriage, we, we're going to read beginning in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. And remember, in Genesis 1, every time God created something, he said it was good. So God now has found something that's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but... For Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God points out to Adam that he's missing something, and then he underscores that what he's missing is not going to be found among the animals. So the Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam needed a suitable helper, one who would be suitable to help him fulfill God's purpose for him, one who would help him display the image of God's seamless unity and self-giving love. In other words, we were just not going to see that image in Adam as clearly unless there was someone else. Before the fall, God's image required a man and a woman together to express it. So God created the woman and brought her to Adam, and we saw in verse 24 God's design for marriage from the very beginning, that the man and woman would be joined together and become one flesh. So marriage surpasses anything that the animals could offer Adam an image-bearing. There's no unity between Adam and the animals. There's divergence, but the woman is suitable. She's um, suitable to live in unity with the man because she came right out of the body of the man. So we're going to kind of use that idea as a, tr- and as a transition. We're going to think about a parallel here. The first Adam was created in the image of God, and he was given a bride, Eve, to help him display that image. But that failed miserably in sin. And so Jesus, God's son, who is the second Adam, that's what he's called in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Jesus is the image of God. And he came and God gave him a bride. And that bride is the church. Revelation 21.9 calls the church the bride of the Lamb. And God gave him that bride to help him display his image everywhere. So do you see the parallel between Adam and Jesus? Jesus is committed to displaying his image of seamless unity and self-giving love to the ends of the earth. And this relationship between Jesus and the church is what Paul had in mind as he wrote Ephesians 5. Go ahead and turn there with me. Paul used this relationship between Christ and the church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. Now, none of us are in a perfect marriage. Marriage can be hard. But there's a bigger message that we need to understand. So, read with me and listen to how often Paul refers to the church or the body in the midst of his teaching about marriage. And Last night, after these were long since printed, I thought it would have been helpful to put a little diagram on there, so I'm going to try to tell you about my diagram for taking notes as we read this, and if it makes no sense, you just take notes however you want. But I made a diagram that was helpful, and it was like two circles, and at the top of each, one circle was the husband, and at the top of the other circle was Jesus, and at the bottom of this circle was the wife, and at the bottom of this circle was the church. And then I put one arrow going from the top to the bottom, and one arrow going from the bottom back up to the top. And so then, when it tells me something about Christ, Christ towards the church, I put it on that side. Something about the church toward Christ, I put it on the other side. And the same with the husband-wife. Thing. So that helped me get a better picture of the passage. Just a thought. Okay, let's read the passage. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one's ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as Himself And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So here we have Paul, and he's teaching on marriage, and the whole time he's highlighting the church's relationship with Jesus. In 8 out of 12 verses on marriage, Paul was talking about Jesus and the church. He wants to shine a spotlight on this precious relationship between the bride and her husband, Jesus. So, get this. Marriage is about displaying the way God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him. That is to be unfolded in our marriages. Isn't that so much bigger than we tend to think? Marriage has this incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing Christ's love relationship with the church. So what does that mean for a wife? What role does a wife play in marriage in displaying the image of God? Well, in Ephesians 5.22 we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The wife displays the image of God in marriage by willingly yielding herself to the authority God has placed over her in her husband. Cooperatively, in a way that's helpful, Being a suitable helper, like Eve was designed to be. Being on the same team, being for him. Submission literally means to line yourself up under. It's how a wife is to posture herself under her husband's role. Now, I kind of want to talk to you like an older woman for a minute, as a woman who's applied my own sinful thinking to the idea of submission in more ways than I can count. Um, There are a lot of misunderstandings and incomplete ideas about submission. We might think it's all about what I can't do instead of what I get to do. We might think it's about behavior rather than about our heart. You know, it's okay to sit down on the outside but stand up on the inside. We might think that submission means that if there's a disagreement, I just have to give in. Um, We might think that if we're sinned against, that we shouldn't speak up. Or that submission is something we have to do because it's God's way of keeping us in line. Might be something to that one. (laughs) But those are shallow and those are incomplete and skewed ideas about this glorious call to submit. And a poor understanding of biblical submission can very easily lead to self-righteousness and judgment and joylessness and lack of intimacy and bitterness. So I was praying this week how to inspire you. (laughs) How to paint a high view and an accurate and rich view of biblical submission. And so this account from Exodus 17 came to mind, um, probably because I'd just been there in my reading plan. But... You might not have ever heard a passage on submission from this before, so hang in there with me. I hope it helps you as much as it helped me. Okay, so in Exodus 17, God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt and safely through the Red Sea. And as they're traveling along, the Amalekites came out and fought against them. So Moses told Joshua to take some men and go fight while Moses stood on a hill with the staff of God in his hand. And as long as Moses held his hand up, Israel would prevail. But when he let his hand down, Amalek would prevail. But, it says, Moses' hands were heavy. You know, you can only do this for so long. And so, Aaron and Hur, two other men, brought over a rock for him to sit on. And they supported his hands. And the word says, thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So think with me for a minute about what Aaron and Hur did not do. They didn't go off and come up with their own ideas of how to fight the Amalekites. And when Moses' hands were heavy, they didn't push him out of the way and say, here, just let me do it for you. They didn't criticize You know, they didn't say, what's wrong with you? Isn't Joshua doing the hard part? It's going to be your fault if we lose a bunch of guys. They didn't stand back with their arms folded over their chest, waiting for Moses to humiliate himself. And they didn't stand timidly by, just waiting for Moses to tell them what to do. Instead, they came alongside Moses, and they helped him. They helped Moses do what God had given him to do. Clearly, God gave Moses more to do than he could do on his own. And God's plan was that as Aaron and Hur submitted themselves to God's leadership for them through Moses, their role was to help him. And that's what we're called to do. We submit to God's plan to lead us through the authority he's placed over us through our husband. We need to recognize that our husband has a weighty call. And we need to help them, not by taking over or coming up with our own plan or criticizing or being inactive, but by coming alongside and strengthening and encouraging and being for them, not against them. Being a faithful sister in Christ. And if we train our hearts to understand submission biblically, it makes us eager to do all that we can to be helpful to our husband. It means always wanting to see... If there are better ways that we can free him up to be faithful to what God has given him to do. You know, even if your husband's not a believer, you know that his role is challenging. And you can live with him in such a way that he is strengthened to fulfill those responsibilities. How can you help him have as good of an influence as he possibly can on your kids? Are there ways we can be more diligent and fruitful in our homes so that our husbands are freed up for the responsibilities that we really can't help them with directly? Wives, are we being lovable? Of course, it's not easy. It's really not easy if you are redeemed and you're living with someone who is not redeemed. It can be wearisome. It can be hard. And we're going to come back and talk more about that before we're done today. You know, sometimes it's hard because it exposes sin in our own hearts. But God's call on our husbands is not easy either. Think about Moses holding up his hands all day long. It says he held them up until sunset. And now think about what Ephesians 5 has given our husbands to do. To love us like Christ loves the church a job that is never done, a standard that is impossibly high. Let that fuel in you a desire to display the image of your Savior well by submitting to your husband, coming alongside him and helping him and serving him and dying to yourself because you belong to Christ. That is how we get to selflessly portray the submissive church selflessly because that is the image of God in Christ. He did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life away. That's what service is. It's giving ourselves away. Jesus gave himself away and why as we selflessly give away ourselves in submissiveness, we portray the submissive church. Now turn to 1 Peter 3:1. It's not hard to understand why the church would submit to God and to our God and Savior Jesus who redeemed us. But it is harder to do when it comes to one sinner submitting to another, especially if your husband isn't walking with the Lord. The world says marriage has to be a two-way street. You know, it's a 50/50 proposition. So again, we have to look at what God says. First Peter 3:1 begins by saying, "In the same way." And now here he's referring back to chapter two and looking at Christ's example. First uh, Peter 2:23 it says, "While being reviled." He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's hand in his suffering, and when he was sinned against, he did not sin in response. He was not concerned with defending himself. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one, without a word, by the behavior of their wives. Again, we see this command for wives to be submissive, and this time it is to disobedient husbands in particular, because they might be won. This is a powerful, image-bearing submission that God has in mind. It might be his tool for actually winning a disobedient husband, without a word, by the behavior of their wives. Verses 2-4 through describe this submissive behavior. It says, As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Submission is displayed in behavior that is chaste, and respectful. Chaste means pure and holy. And respectful, both here as well as back in Ephesians 5 that we read a minute ago, is a reverent fear and honor that draws you nearer to your husband, that leads you into humble, thankful appreciation of him because of the role God has placed him in over you. You respect your hub- husband out of reverence for Christ. And we can utterly and absolutely trust. That he is at work to lead us as we submit to and respect our husband. Verse 4 then tells us that this chaste, respectful behavior flows from the hidden person of the heart. He's not just acting submissive, it's a heart attitude. And that should sound familiar. That's another look at how discipline one enables us to live out discipline two. How else will we ever possess a quiet and gentle spirit? We must shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ through his word. This passage points right back to the heart and the greater relationship with God that we must not neglect. And it underscores the call to submission, not only when our husband is walking with the Lord, but every bit as much when a husband is disobedient to the word. Submission is non-negotiable. It is the way for a wife to, to display God's image of unity and self-giving love in marriage. And it can be God's tool for winning the disobedient husband. Now, if we find any tension in hearing that, we've got to stop and ask, where is that tension coming from? Because it doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't come from his word. It comes from this culture that left God behind a long time ago. This culture that doesn't want anybody to submit. If we let ourselves be bombarded by the world's messages, and if we're not soaking ourselves in the word consistently, then we will struggle. We'll be tempted to adopt the world's view of marriage that says, stay put as long as your desires and expectations are being met. But the god center view tells us to preserve marriage because it brings glory to God, and it points a sinful world to a reconciling creator. It displays God's image. So we must shepherd our hearts into the presence of God through the word to get his message for us so that we can stand firm against what a godless culture would want us to believe. We need to keep bringing our lives to the word and let our lives be bombarded with its truth so that we are ready to shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation holding fast the word of life. And be encouraged. Our world is getting darker, and that means that the truth just has the opportunity to shine that much more brightly. Submission is a powerful, unifying, self-giving display of God's image to a lost, God-hating world. It reflects who our God is and how he relates to us. Now you have a couple other passages there in your notes. They're just there for an encouragement. um, To be faithful in bearing God's image well in your marriage Because as you look at those, you will see how God used a faithful mother and grandmother to train and prepare Timothy for ministry, even when his dad wasn't a believer. So, we are going to uh, look at our implications now. That's the last page of your notes. Um, Basically, that last page is just kind of a summary of our whole lesson, and we've already touched on many of these points pretty thoroughly, either with Lori or... Um, in this lesson, and so I just want to highlight a couple of them. Um, the first one I, I want to highlight is number four under uh, the implications for bearing God's image in singleness. Um, God's design encourages hospitality and ministry in our homes, inviting others in, nurturing, shepherding, reaching out. None of those things are on hold if you, just because you're not married. Um, it's part of how we cultivate that unity with the body and serve the body and make the gospel known to the lost. And I I just want to encourage you to be creative with this. Um, It doesn't require a dining room table in China. Um, If you really want to entertain with a dining room table in China and you don't have them, find someone who does and then offer to come over and throw a dinner party at their house. (laughs) That would be a way to get your finger to find out just how much fun it is to wash China after a big dinner. (laughs) Um, But paper plates and potluck and sitting on the floor you can have just as good a fellowship. You really can. So it's an opportunity to, to be diligent about pursuing that peace with the body and caring for others, letting others care for you. Um, and then the second one, or, I'm sorry, number five there, God's design humbles the single woman to seek the wisdom and protection of Christian parents or other leaders in the church or older women um, it's a blessing that many times single women are actually out in the world more. They're in the workplace or they're in school, they're on the bus. And th- that's just awesome opportunities to be giving out the gospel and shining the light. But it also means that you're going to be that much more vulnerable to its influence. You know, there's just a lot of Kool Aid out there. And so, <laughs> and it's not good. Don't drink it. It looks pretty, but it's bad. Um, and, and having people in your life to help keep an eye on your heart um, just protects you. you know they, they may see things in you that's harder for you to see because you're in it every day. So that's just, that's just wise, especially to cultivate those relationships with people who are a different season of life than you, different age. Paul Tripp says that one of our biggest problems is our tendency even as believers is to be blind. and often what we're most blind about is our own blindness. Mm-hmm. And so this is a chance to have other people help you see your blindness. Um, At the same time, because you understand (laughs) you're out there sharing the gospel, you can probably help me see my blindness because I spend so much time in my house. Um, Okay. Let's um, go ahead and jump down then and look at a couple of the implications of God's design for displaying his image in marriage as well. Um, Number four For those who are not currently married, this obviously, again, just applies to uh, all of us, God's design excludes marrying or otherwise entering into a close relationship with a man who is not in Christ or to whom she would be unwilling to biblically submit. When you see God's design, this just makes sense. Why would we unite ourselves to one who rejects reflecting the self-giving image of God? If the highest purpose for marrying is so that the husband and the wife together can be united and sacrifice themselves in such a way that it displays Christ in the church, then uniting ourselves to a self-grasper defeats that purpose. It would obscure the image of God. And the wife's role in that image-bearing is to submit. And so a Christian woman must not enter into that kind of relationship with a man to whom she would not submit in marriage. It wouldn't display God's image. And on the other hand, if you are married to a man who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, God's will for you is to display Christ to him and to your children as you serve them and treasure them in a way that flows out of what the gospel is doing in you. What a kindness of God to your family to place a living testimony to his redeeming work right there in the middle of of the household, right there in front of them. This is true for anyone living with those who don't believe. You get to joyfully follow Christ and glorify him by loving them. And the world gets to see the image of Christ in you as you do this. This is just so like our Savior because he loved us when we were lost. And so as you do that, love the lost people in your home with the same love with which Christ has loved you. The number five, uh, God's design for us to bear his image in marriage restricts consideration of divorce to only those cases where it's biblically permissible, and even at that, it's only a last resort after one has exhaustively and earnestly sought restoration. There's probably not a single person in here who has not been directly or indirectly impacted by divorce. But if we understand God's purposes in marriage, It will help us keep from basing our opinion about a particular divorce on circumstances, or experiences, or personalities. And it drives us to treasure marriage as something which God designed to display something very special about Himself. We need to treasure marriage because God treasures marriage. Divorce is one of the most hostile statements we can make against God himself because divorce says the picture marriage reflects about God is something I'm willing to shatter. Believers who embrace God's purpose for marriage will work until the end to save marriage. To say it differently, we work throughout all of our marriage to savor marriage as God does. To recommit ourselves frequently to God's exalted purpose because then marriage has a purpose beyond ourselves. So what about divorce in our past? Maybe our parents were divorced, or our spouse was divorced, or maybe we ourselves were divorced. So what about divorce in our past? Listen carefully. Divorce is not a sin that is bigger than the gospel. It's not. Now, knowing how much God values marriage does give us reason to grieve over divorce, But first and most, let's look at divorce in light of the cross. Whether it's your divorce or someone else's. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate the divorced believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate the believing child or parent or sister who is impacted by divorce from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus. Remember the grace realities. God's wrath has been poured out for all sin, for all who believe. There is not a drop left. There are consequences for divorce, there are consequences for any sin, whether we sinned or whether we were sinned against. But as believers, we can rest and we can be confident that our loving God compels even those consequences. To work for our good. Do you believe that? Well, over the last two lessons, we've taken a good look at what God's Word says about His design and purpose for us as women. And His design for us to live as women bearing His image in the body of Christ in seasons of singleness and marriage. We've seen that in Christ we're called to die to ourselves. We've seen that real satisfaction and joy is found in God himself. And we've seen how central discipline one is, because that is the way we cultivate this most important relationship of all, the one that we have with Jesus. And discipline one, meeting with God in his word, is what fuels our faithfulness in bearing God's image of seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. So be purposeful. Shepherd your heart with God's word. Shepherd your thinking with truth about your season of life. Pursue unity with those in your household and those in our church. Pursue it. Work for it. Because we have the amazing privilege of bearing God's image and declaring the unfathomable riches of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Oh, Lord, as as Lori already said, it truly is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we are needy people, and we need so much equipping. But thank you for your lavish grace that saved us and continues to form us into the image of his Son. and promises that you will return to receive us to yourself. Fathers, we go to our discussion groups. I pray, Lord, that you um, would help us to make the most of the short time. I pray that each one of us would get the opportunity to share and to be cared for by one another. In Jesus' name, amen.